And so I was asking, could that be? Like, could it be that if you fully validate and connect with God? And so, um, and then I wrote in another class, and again, high achiever, I took astronomy in the fifth semester, and uh, I remember sitting down in class, and this time, uh, learning the story of my uh, professor instructor at the time. And I learned about the, you know, the universe is 13 million years old, the Earth is four and a half billion years old, and there's new information to me. Um, I grew up in the inner city of Detroit, so we talked about other things besides the universe. And uh, so, uh, when he began to share his passion, and then eventually sitting in office hours with him, I learned that my instructor Jeff Hill was a devout Christian. And as a matter of fact, his faith fueled his science, and then vice versa, his science fueled his faith. Uh, and you can't believe how much that encouraged me, because I was majoring in the sciences uh, as well. And so, as you look at the book of Genesis, and it, just, it talks about the beginning, beginning of the universe. A lot of culture, a lot of society is trying to frame the conversation, at least for the church, and saying that either you're in or you're out. And the conversation is so much wider than that. As you look at Genesis 1 and 2 specifically, you'll find out that actually God does a very good job at carefully telling that the universe is carefully expanding to become what it is. As a matter of fact, if you read chapters, uh, chapter 1, you realize that whether it's six days or 13 million years, there's a progressive growth in creation. It doesn't all happen at once. The God is very intentional. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. It doesn't matter if you think it's 24 hours or billions of years. There's a progression. And as you think about that, as you read that, you look at any other kind of creative narrative in history, especially in ancient Near East history where the time of the Bible was written, you'll find out that there's nothing like that. There's nothing that consistent with the way that we think about the world today. And so scientists say that 13 billion years ago, the universe was as tiny as an atom and expanding to what it is today. I've got a picture right up here of uh, the, the universe as the Hubble uh, telescope tells us. Uh, and uh, it was actually uh, proposed by uh, a guy who was a physicist and an ordained Catholic priest, uh, Georgia Mater, who says that the universe has been expanding and that there was a beginning to it. Interesting enough, but a Catholic priest was the one that uh, proposed that theory. Later on, it became known as the Big Bang, right? That's what we learned in school. And so scientists don't know, they're unsure if uh, they'll ever know the origins of the Big Bang, right? Because we don't have enough uh, knowledge in our quantum physics to be able to tell us what happened the moment before, because really there is no moment before, because the Big Bang created time. And without the Big Bang, there wasn't time, and so how do we get to the moment that wasn't actually a moment? Because we don't have the tools to do it, right? So they don't know, and they don't they're not confident, however. No. And so a guy named Robert Gastro, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm a bit of a nerd. I have astronomy books at home. <laughs> and so if, uh, if you read um, uh, Robert Gastro, who is a physicist and an agnostic, uh, he actually says this in his book, God and Astronomers. Is this where the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Kind of funny. He's saying, like my community, like we've been trying to ask the questions that theologians have been asking for centuries. Uh, but he talks about a very powerful idea, actually. And that's this, two scientists actually help theologians, and then vice versa, the theologians actually help scientists. I think so. I think so. Another man named Arnold Zias, 
Uh, he won the Nobel, uh, Nobel Prize in Physics in 1974. We're actually discovering evidences for the Big Bang, right? And uh, this is what he says. Um, he's Jewish, by the way. He says, by looking at the order in the world, we can infer purpose. And from purpose, we begin to get some knowledge of the creator, the planner of all this. This is then how I look at God. I look at God from the works of God's hands. And from the works of God's hands are implied intentions. And from these intentions, I receive the impression of the Almighty. You see, his science feels its faith, and his faith is his science. Now, uh, can we say that just because George L. Lecher and Arno Padillas and my professor Jeff Hill and other scientists, just because they believe in Genesis uh, 1 account, uh, that is true? Can we infer that? No, we can't do that. Like, that means that we, can't, we can't say that. But what is true? And I think this is a statement, for those of us who remember doubted like me. I think this is a statement. What we can no longer say, what we can no longer say is this. The serious scientific-minded people can't believe in Genesis 1 and 2. We can no longer say that. These men have told These are the men that have led us to understand the universe. And so what about my anthropology subject? What did he do? Like when he said, if you don't, if you believe in religion or believe in evolution, you can't believe in God. What did he do? Well, uh, actually, he made an assertion. He made an assertion, and not an argument. Uh, but to be fair to them, there's a lot of people, and you've probably heard this before, there are a lot of people that actually say that religion, what we believe faith, actually evolves. Look, you ever heard that before? You ever heard the, the line that says religion is a crutch? You've heard that before, right? And so the meaning behind that is that religion developed as a need uh, for us to understand the world so that we could actually uh, survive to the next generation. We needed to get a story to our children so that we could survive. And so this is actually um, a very popular way of thinking. Uh, it's a theory, obviously, it's not necessarily uh, a true statement. Uh, but uh, it's based off of this, it's based off of natural selection. Uh, this stuff right here, again, this is stuff I, I want to share because we wrote it on all of our cards. I want to get through it because I want to get to like, what I really want to talk about. But this is from Alvin Flanagan. So I'm going to read this real quick. Uh, and uh, 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 he actually talks about how this is based on natural selection. He says, the, the way that people think about this is that uh, you know, natural selection, as you've learned, is not concerned about true beliefs, it's concerned about survival and adaptation. Right? And so, uh, uh, you don't actually have to believe correct things in order to survive. As a matter of fact, sometimes you believe incorrect things in order to survive. And so it's based off of that that a lot of people would make the argument that sometimes we believe false things in order to survive. So that's the development of that thought. And so Genesis 1 and 2 are untrue stories that we believe in order for us to survive. So it's the argument. So planting it, I think we have this quote up here. He says this, uh, if a theory makes it impossible to trust our minds, then it must make it impossible to be sure about getting anything our mind tells us. Then it also makes it impossible to be sure about anything our minds tells us, including macroevolution itself and everything else. Any theory that makes it impossible to trust our minds is self defeating So what's he saying? He's saying that the very theory that's trying to undermine religion also has to undermine Evolution, right? He's saying that if you can't trust your mind, if you can't even trust the theory of evolution, which is what these guys are saying, uh, falsifies religion. And so he's making a pretty powerful argument. 
that if we are to believe something about the universe, we should be able to trust our minds in the things that we believe. So, um, there is a guy named David, I can say I won't read his whole entire quote, but he basically says, he's a theologian, he says, there's a way in which for us to understand the process of biological evolution that doesn't fit with biblical view. And I know already a lot of us have come like, we grew up in church, and I'm like, oh, you're one of those guys, you're a new world, right? Uh, I already know, I already have had times that just assume because it's true. Alright? Atkinson is to say you have to believe in uh, macro evolution, alright? He does, by the way, he does. He's not saying that, but just like the big thing, uh, he's saying that there's possible ways for us to understand the text of Genesis 1 and 2 and not necessarily have, uh, you know, a throwaway scientific discovery. And we're going to read uh, one of the texts in a little bit, right? And so, what I want to say really is that both sides of believers and non believers want to create this huge dichotomy that really is never, there's no, there's no, there's no necessity for it. Right? Were there believers in uh, evolutionary uh, uh, biology and Genesis 1 and 2? Yes, there are. All the way back to the days of Darwin. Okay? Uh, there is no need for this huge dichotomy. So, the whole entire conversation about this, although it's important, we need to uh, discover more. Uh, really, that economy doesn't need to exist. If you grew up in it, I want to give you permission to understand this. That you don't have to be so confused about, uh, you know, do I have to be uh, evolutionist in order to be smart, or do I have to believe in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, and young earth creation in order to be a good Christian? Like, that economy is false. Alright? Is that point taken? Okay. Alright, I have to skip over evolution yet. There's so much more that I want to talk about that. Goldberg uh, is not going to do it. Because I want to get to why the universe is true. This is where my heart is. I'm not a scientist. I, I gave up science uh, five years ago. Uh, I'm a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but if you want to read my notes, it's really good. So. Genesis 1 1 and 26 and 27 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and all of the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Man and he created him. I want to illustrate something real quick with this. Uh, George Lucas uh, released Star Wars episode one. Uh, in 1999, right? I know this is an easy answer. Uh, <clears throat> Star Wars Episode Four was released in 1977. Right? Yeah, what? I asked your mind. Right. So you know this. If you follow, if you follow the saga, like Episode Four was released uh, in the 70s, and then Episode One, the prequel of everything was released in 1999. Why? George Lucas says this, that he needed technology to advance, special effects to advance to the point where he was comfortable to tell the story of episode one. In a sense, he needed reality to catch up before he can tell you the beginning. And so, uh, there's a bit of a prequel that's going on in Genesis here. Alright? Genesis 1 and 2 is not the beginning of the story, even though the Greek word genesis means beginning or origins. Um, uh, genesis is actually episode 4, and it's not episode 1. 
see all you geeks like all excited now because we're talking about Star Wars, right? I've seen all of them. I've seen all of them. Uh, Genesis introduces the universe of creation, but it doesn't talk about the why yet. Okay. By the time we get to Genesis, there's already a plot in God's story that's unfolded. The plot was already part of it. Genesis is actually the beginning of that plot. So like, imagine this. We've got a couple babies in church. I see a couple babies being called here. Uh, and so imagine this. Imagine a couple who are going to have a baby. And so they're frantically and joyfully getting ready for the baby. They find a room. They start painting it. They hang up lights. Uh, you know, is it pink? Is it blue? I don't know. Like, I want to be one of those couples that don't tell anybody I'm going to have a, you know, an announcement party, right? So they don't want to pick it until like a day of, in case their friends find out. So they do all this, like, frantic preparation. And so you're buying food because the baby's coming, and then you're also buying toys because the baby's coming. And then none of this makes sense without a baby, right? Finally, the baby comes. Finally, the baby comes. And you're so excited because all this hard work actually makes sense, you know, without the baby that paint doesn't make sense without the baby that, you know, if you were a grown man and you had a bunch of baby stuff in your house and no baby, you would be arrested, all right? And so it makes sense now that the baby is here. Genesis 1 wants to do this, right? It talks about science, it includes the science, but it's not a science. Genesis 1 is trying to capture our heart with this idea that God is a daddy. Preparing the universe for children. And as you read it, the, the pinnacle of his creation are his children. And they're wanting, he's wanting to have a relationship with them. In God's heart, he's his daddy that wants to pour out love onto children. In the Bible, this kind of relationship is called a covenant. Like marriage is a covenant. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. I do know some people who have uh, marriage as a contract, uh, and uh, yeah, immigration is <laughs> trying to get them. Uh, but marriage is a covenant, and not a contract. Right? It's, it exists for relationship, mutual benefit. So in Genesis 1, God's plot begins to unfold. And we discover this, that God is interested in having a covenant end, a relational end based on the relationship and mutual effect. So the answer in what happened before the universe, uh, before the Big Bang, and before Genesis, is actually the key to understanding why. So what happened before creation, what happened before Big Bang, what happened before Genesis? Right? What's the prequel to Genesis 1? And the clue is actually in verse 26. Uh, the author says, let us make man in our image. So notice the plural usage of us. A lot of theologians believe that this is in a, in a, it references the Trinity, right? Uh, Orthodox Jews don't. They believe that us is actually like the royal we. And so like the queen says, oh, we are not pleased. She's actually saying, I'm not pleased, right? And so um, though that sounds right and great, uh, the reality is that like there is no other usage like this in the rest of the Bible. And so, uh, what do we believe as Christians? Well, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 3, if you read that, uh, you'll notice that there are three kind of manifestations of God at work. It's very interesting. Go back and read it, right? I'm not saying there are three, like, distinct people, but there are three expressions, manifestations of God, exactly with that, um, in verses 1 and 3. And the first is the God who decrees. It's actually the person. The second is the Spirit of God is covering. And the third is the Word of God 
that's created. There's a person who creates, there's a spirit that's hovering, and there's a work that actually does the creation. Right? Before the existence of time, space, universe, God was hanging out already as a community. God had his voice, or God was a voice. I don't know how to say that. I don't want to offend the ladies, but I'm from the hood, so he said that's my boy. <laughs> God had his crew. Alright, there's more than true. Uh, it was the source, it was the spirit, and it was the word, according to the beginning sentences of Genesis. The source, the spirit, and the word. The New Testament language actually then gives us a new language for it, and it becomes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God himself is a, a self-contained community covenant. God himself is a community. Right? Uh, C.S. Lewis says that in Christianity, God is not a static thing. He's not even a person, really, but a dynamic, pulsating, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. Story. All of God's creative action flows out of this drama, out of this story, of this, like, covenant community that he's always been. Everything he does comes out of the knowledge that he has community among them already. Alright? What am I trying to say? Alright, I don't even know what people. What am I trying to say? The Trinity and the life that they enjoy is a prequel to all the creation. And it's taken us some time to get to the point where we can begin to understand it. And so later, actually, in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about, ah, now I, now I get it. Paul talks about, like, ah, there's some revelation that now we, we see. Now that Jesus has come, we understand a little bit more of what uh, creation is all about. So Ephesians chapter 3, sorry, chapter 1, verses 4 on, Paul says this. All right, notice the language. I'm going to try to highlight it. He says, uh, even as he chose, this is Father, he decreed he decreed even uh, as he chose us in him, listen to this, before the foundation of the world, alright, he thought of us before creation ever existed, that we should be holy and blameless, that's his desire for you. In love, he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, the Son, according to the purpose of his will. There's a plan set for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him you also, this is good news, in him you also, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him. You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. God had a plan, don't get hung up on the word predestination, but God had a plan from the very beginning, before, before the Big Bang, before Genesis, before anything happened, God had a plan that he was going to create a family, adopt his sons and daughters, through Jesus, this is the predestination part, it was going to be through Jesus, Jesus was like the midwife, in some sense, and they were going to rule all of creation with justice, with love, with mercy, how? Through the promised seal of the Holy Spirit. This is the plan in God's mind since the beginning. This is the one. This was in God's heart. This is what he dreamt about. I don't know what he did before creation. Uh, I began cases because I'm thinking he's cases. But maybe he looks at cases. 
But he had a dream in his heart. Later on, Paul calls this in uh, chapter 3, verse 11. He calls this the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal, since the beginning before that way and in the end that way, like this is the purpose the guy had. For, for everything that he does, everything that flows out of him meets this purpose. And he accomplished it in the person of Jesus. Paul said that God has always had a dream to express Trinitarian community outside of himself. It's always been his dream to give himself to other people, to share life, to share the Trinity, to share a Trinitarian life. You know where I'm going with this, by the way? To share a Trinity life. But not, not your, your understanding will be good or not. It's always been God's dream that He would create a community from Jesus to enjoy the kind of community that He's always had. So. Always been the dream. What the Trinity enjoyed before the universe was now Genesis 1 2. Now, for the first time ever, being implemented outside of Loving each other, serving each other, building each other. Just like the training that we do with people trying to Before creation, only God, the God, the training, before, before creation happened, only, only God had experienced life. It was the training life. This is where I get about the watch. After creation, he began growing the body. And from Trinity life, he began to extend body life. But it's true. When we say body life, we're not just talking about hanging out, eating food, having good fun. We're saying, well, I want you to experience the same quality of life that the Trinity has been experiencing since the beginning. And it may not happen now, but that's the only one that he is. Have you heard the man say earlier? Sure, you can Netflix every now and then and play more games. But our hope is that the life that Jesus came to give us from the Trinity is actually what you experience through the Bible. Paul makes this very clear in Ephesians 4. He says, Rather, speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined together by joints and ligaments with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it will itself in love. Paul's talking about the church. What does it do to your heart so that before time again God had been dreaming of Jesus and the church? <laughs> Before creation, God dreamed of the body for the head, Jesus. Before creation, God dreamed of the bride for the groom, Jesus. Before creation, God dreamed of a family for his son, Jesus. Before creation, God dreamed of a temple for the spirit of God, 
And the great high priest, priest Jesus, who dwelt it's always been a part of God's dream to have Jesus in the church. Before creation, God created the church for his kingdom and its king, Jesus. It's with this song that God was, God was saying this. That's what he was saying. What Paul wrote. That was what was going on in his mind when he spoke uh, uh, these words in verse 22 or 26. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, some, some diagnosis for, if, if, if you grew up in the church or if you're, if you're a believer, just diagnosing us. Um, it's possible that your disconnection from the head is related to your disconnection from the body. If, you, if you're a believer and you feel disconnected from Jesus, it's possible that your disconnection from Jesus is really an indicator that you're actually disconnected from the body. Sometimes the only way back to the head through the body. Sometimes the only way to understanding an intimate relationship with Jesus is through an intimate relationship with God. And so let me, let me pause here and be really practical and really help you understand what we're trying to do at, at Trinity Life at this church. So love the body, serve the body, build the body. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. So that's what we did. That's what we do as a body, right? It doesn't make sense when you see like, you see my new shoes? Okay. This is such a, this is a bad illustration. I bought it for cheap, by the way. And so, but this would be really weird. Imagine this is a foot, okay? Imagine that was a foot, and it was just hanging out by itself, and it was walking around, right? That's pretty strange. And yet many of us insist on living that life as a Christian. You live a very strange life for us. This walking around, disconnected from the body. I've lived that life. I understand completely what it means. So I want to say uh, this, uh, that actually, uh, sorry, uh, these you not skin that this under that. So the reality is that once you learn the essence and the art of body life, we'll leave that one that we've been around here to once you learn the art of it, the essence of it, you carry it around from where you go. Body life is not a group. Body life is not a gathering. It's life that Jesus can give us. Once you learn the art of it, you naturally do body life whenever two, two or three gather together in Jesus' name, and you're hanging out at Starbucks. You're building each other up. You're serving each other. You're loving each other. You're doing what the church has always been doing since the end of time. You're adding to the body. That's evangelism. This is the life that God can give us. Not to separate anyone. Right? So watch that. How, how do we attempt this? How do we do this uh, at Trinity Life? Well, uh, a body of How do we try to teach it? Well, a body of Have we done it perfectly? No. No, no. Have we seen cool things happen? Yeah. Absolutely. We have a vision this year to see 10 body offers starting to come. Because we want to see that many people live in the body of Christ. We love Sundays, but you're not building me up on Sunday. Some of you guys do, but you know, you're also not 
serving not everybody, some do, but there's this dynamic that they can't happen here. So our vision really, when we talk about body language, is we want to see house gatherings or coffee shop gatherings of people that just love each other. And some of you guys do that super well. And because you do this so well, maybe you should be leaving them. And so uh, I'm going to make a little plug. I think we have a, a slide up here. We are uh, next week starting three weeks of body life group training. Um, I know this is not still that one there. Uh, if you want to be a part of one, if you also want to help lead one for the next three weeks, I just want to invite you uh, to consider being a part of this group. But we're, we're not, this is not like, a, we're not going to do a lecture. We're going to practice body life for three weeks. Body life is not something you've taught, it's taught. When we send out uh, Adam and, or Aaron and Lindsay and Curtis and Kelly and a bunch of them to start out downtown by life, it wasn't because we had gave them strong, strong theology. It's because they had lived in it for a year and they just knew how to do it again. Right. So we're going to the next three weeks. We want to regroup and then we want to invite also those who, who would like to see one in your home start as well. And so if you can let us know in the blue card that you received today, um, just say, hey, I would like to. Just say, I like more information. I think there's a checkbox there. Uh, and even if you've been tracking this for a while, just check that off. As the author goes around, just drop it in the bag, and we'll contact you if you need more information. And so, but I want to really, uh, I really, really encourage you to, to ask the question, well, okay, I, I can't stop. But have you ever lived, have you ever lived in that environment where you built each other, love each other, serve one another, and also you added to the body, seems to make life transform until you've lived that life? You don't realize what Jesus came to do. Everything else is like a Bible study. Or it's like social justice stuff. And none of those things are wrong. I, the picture, I was crying and taking pictures of you, like you guys were my babies, but you know, I left. Aaron was out here with Linnea and, and, and Mindy. I said, oh, they did it. God, they did it. They did it. What we've been doing. Alright, let's close this in. Ben, you guys can come up. You will never, ever, Regret investing in the body. At this point, I'm probably talking to Christmas Mandate. If you're, a, if you're kind of investigating still, I definitely want to say the same thing to you. You will never regret investing in the body. Never. Are there challenges in relationships? Yes. Is the church perfect? Absolutely not. Not this one. You're looking for a perfect church? Don't come here, because this is it. That's too much expectation to put on to the church. Alright. But there's an article that was posted in our community this week, and the, the theme of that article was this that we stumble forward together. We stumble forward together. When you invest in the body, you invest in the only institution that God has been dreaming since before the universe. Thank you. You're investing in the eternal purpose of God. Body life is better than the high life, the fast life, the good life, the great life, your sex life, your straight life, your gay life, your simple life, your married life, your single life, your self-absorbed life, your busy life, your up-and-coming life, and any other life. Body life is so much better than all of this. 
If it's not coming from the Trinity, then it may not be life at all. In Genesis 3, the first souls that God breathed into either a lump of dirt, if you're a Lois, or, you know, uh, you know, a homo, like a if you're a richness, he breathed into the first souls, Adam and Eve. And what they did was they chose life apart from God. And they found themselves naked in the shame against Jesus. And sin does that to us. Sin finds us naked in the shame. And our initial reaction is exactly what Adam and Eve did. It was covered up. It covered up. Sin's goal was never moral or physical corruption. Sin's goal is spiritual isolation from God. Let me say that again. Sin's goal is not moral or physical corruption as much as it is spiritual isolation from God. It's, it's the enticement, it's the lore towards the conclusion that death or isolation or death and sorrow. God breathed into Adam, Trinity life, sin, sucked it out, and left him in shame. Here's the good news. The message of Ephesians chapter 3. The message that was in existence already before Genesis chapter 1. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live a life that's covered up. You don't have to live a pretend life. Notice what God says in Genesis 3, verse 9. It's the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? God never asks a question to gain information. God always asks a question to give you information. Where are you, man? Where are you? Why are you covering me? He wanted them to understand that they're lost. You're lost. You're naked and ashamed. You wanted them to understand. They try to cover the shame through some method. That's the thing. That's true to all of us. If you go to my house, you'll find a closet work with big leaves. Not really, but if you can't get a closet in my heart, you can see nothing but big leaves. Try to cover up the sin and shame. Filled with protection, filled with doubt. In God's mercy and grace, He does this. He actually gives us an expensive. Genesis 3 21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of sin and clothing. He sacrificed Adam for the first time in all creation, and animal died in an unnatural death. And with that death, it actually covered the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve. It was like from day one, God was saying, doesn't matter how far you stray from my eternal purpose, doesn't matter what you do, I will always, I will always cover you. I will, I will make a sacrifice. You don't notice, though. All you know is so is fig leaves that cover this part. Let me clothe you with white, garments of white. Dazzling. Revelation chapter 21. Dazzling clothes. God did this for you. He doesn't want you to live in shame. He wants you to live in freedom. He 
want you to be able to walk on these knees. And this is where I struggle this week. Fill me up. Maybe. The message of God's story is this that when Jesus went to the cross, God was actually making a man his sacrifice was required in order for us to be entered to be invited to God's kingdom. He clothes, he clothes us in white. He covers our shame. This morning, the question that God is asking us is the same question that he asked how to be happy. He's saying, where are you? Where are you? Let's pray together. Thank mm-hmm. you.